Please be seated. Turn with me in your Bibles once more to Malachi chapter 3, the last book of the Older Testament, Malachi 3. Look at verses 7 through 15. And you know the story. The church in Malachi's day, our Old Testament forefathers, their worship had become lame, heartless. Their leadership was weak and spineless. The relationships with each other were shallow and superficial. The marriages that were existent were being violated as men were behaving treacherously against the wives of their youth and leaving them. Of course, last week we saw a climax of these diff- this litany of problems, these spiritual effects that were showing themselves in the lives of the church of the Old Testament. And we reached a, a climax, a pinnacle of, sort, of sorts, where God confronts his people and says, I will send my messenger. And, of course, that's the message of salvation, as Messiah would be a savior. And so there's a message of salvation, uh, future salvation, as well as uh, an immediate salvation from their sins provided by a Messiah. But it also speaking about judgment, that he's going to come and he's going to shed light on the darkness. And I'm, I'm not going to stand for this kind of behavior anymore, God says. Well, today, if that was the, the pinnacle, we start to work our way down now, the last few sermons in this book, of how to return. Not just this message of your sinners and there's no hope, but here's how you return to me. That is what our passage is about today as we look together at God's word, Malachi 3, verses 7 down to 15. Follow as I read God's holy, inspired, and infallible word. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed, evildoers, not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Let us pray. Father, we are humbled as we see how you mark the return back for the devotion of The church's heart in this day was not for you. It was for their stuff, for what they possessed, for what they owned. And Lord, we confess that this is still a sin that we wrestle with today. Though we speak, we confess the right things, we are as theologically accurate as we can possibly be. We're here at church this morning, but yet our possessions, the things we have, the things we own, the things we're holding on to, still bear much, if not all, of our devotion Pray, O Lord, that you would free us from that, that we would see what this passage is about, that we might, in effect, return to you as well. 
pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There were two men who crashed their small airplane on an island. After brushing themselves off, one of them ran around the island frantically trying to find someone that could help them. The other guy just leaned up against the fuselage and said, Hey, I don't know what you're worried about. I make $5 million a year. It doesn't matter. We're on a deserted island. Can't you see that, he says. It's uninhabited. We're doomed. We're going to die. Don't worry about it. I make $5 million a year. So he, the other man looks all over the island, can't find anyone, comes back. We are doomed. The other man grabs him by the collar and says, Listen to me. Look at me. This is the last time I'm going to tell you. I make $5 million a year. I tithe. My pastor will find me. I am so glad you're smiling right now. Today we come to the classic passage in all the Bible about the subject of tithing. This passage is so well known because of how blatant it is about tithing and bringing contributions. In fact, it's often preached in a vacuum. It's used every time there's a stewardship campaign. Uh, anytime a pastor wants to really drive home if the finances aren't working well in the church, goes to this passage. Now, I think the advantage we have is that we have been studying this book as a whole. You understand, I hope, the place of all that God says in this book. What is the problem these people are dealing with? Their devotion for God was wavering. Uh, they had forgotten his grace, and sin had crept into their lives and their hearts. Is it not interesting that the way God says to go back is not to have a dedicate, rededication service and have everybody bow their heads and raise your hand and come forward if you want to rededicate. It's not all these other manner of public, uh, Lord, I admit I'm a sinner. And instead, it's be obedient in this level and watch what it does for the rest of your spiritual life. It's not just about getting more money for the church or about trying to guilt everybody into giving more. That's not at all what this passage is about. and It's not at all the flavor I want to give it. It's about God saying, this is the way that I open the windows of heaven. This is the way that I transform your life so that your devotion is different than everybody else's. That your God is not your stomach. That your God is not the stuff that you have. It's that I'm your God. And that I'll actually pour out blessing on you, providing all your needs, if you would just give devotion in this base level that affects so many things, so much of our lives. God says, would I not open the windows of heaven to his people for all the problems that they were experiencing, for all the sins that were there? The one thing he tells them is return to me by bringing the full tithes and contributions to the storehouse. Now let's look first at the problem in Malachi's day so that we might make the transference to our day. And I want us to imagine for a moment just dream with me for a moment that if the church, and I don't mean just Redeemer, I mean of all Christian churches, those churches who preach the shed blood of Christ and the Bible is God's word, if those churches would tithe, just imagine what effect that would have. Just imagine for a moment if that were the case. And let's look at the problem in Malachi's day. First, look at verse 7 with me. God says to his people, from the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. And the response is, but how shall we return? Now, he first refers to their historical lack of devotion to God. Their chief problem was what? They turned from their God to serve other gods, whatever it was. It could have been the, the actual golden calf. It could have been the high places. It could have been simply their stuff. And we even see a good king, at least at the beginning of his ministry, like Solomon, who clearly was not worshiping God by the end, 
He was so surrounded with other gods, whether it be in the form of foreign women or just all the stuff he accumulated, and that was his God. That's what he was devoted to. And this was a constant struggle, a constant yo-yo of devotion throughout the Old Testament history. Currently, their turning aside was manifested, as we know, as returning to the land. Their worship was lame. Their relationships were poor. Their marriages were treacherous. And it was, they had an all-around horrible attitude towards God and his grace for them. So God says, from the days of your father, you've turned aside. And after a considerable litany of things that he lays out, he says, return to me. And the answer is, how? So there's an indication here by this question, how, that there is a turning or there is a different mindset finally in this book. After three chapters and almost three chapters and a half, they're saying, how? In other words, asking God for something now or asking for clear, a clear answer. And we'll see that there is a turning that we'll get to next week as far as particularly what the people ask. But now he says, how shall we return? The people say, look at verse 8. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. They probably were looking for any other rebuke you can imagine. This one, I think, shocked them. What do you mean we're robbing you? Uh, what are you talking? What, is this, what does this mean? And they're probably giving. In fact, we know they gave offerings. They were lame offerings, but they're bringing something to God. So this had to baffle them. Wow. What are you talking about, God? Are we robbing you? How have I robbed you, it says in verse 8. And God says, in your tithes and contributions. In your tithes and your contributions. They had to be shocked at this kind of an analogy, that they were robbing God. Now, I don't know if any of you have had the experience of being robbed. Some people have some, someone will break into their, your car and steal things. Uh, and you feel violated. You come back and you see the window put out and you have some things stolen from your car. Recently, Pastor Nathan's brother-in-law and sister-in-law in Chicago uh, they were coming home after being out and literally caught a person stealing in their apartment and running out the back as they were coming in. And so, you know, he's debating, should I chase after this guy? Does he have a gun? I mean, just this terrible, helpless feeling. Someone just robbed you. Then you start looking around your house wondering, what did he get? What, what did he pillage through? What did he take? And you, you always have this feeling of, what did this person see? What did they do? This feeling of violation, like someone came into your area. God is saying that when we withhold his tithes, we're robbing him. And in that sense, that's how God feels when we go on living our lives, holding for ourselves that which is his. It's the same feeling as though he's coming up to the house and sees the robber running out, and the robber is you and I. It's profound, this picture that he gives of the person, the people, who are holding back his tithes. It was all his. He said, I retain 10% of it, as holy, as set apart unto the Lord, and you're stealing it. Augustine really hits it well when he says, where your pleasure is, there is your treasure. Where your treasure is, there is your heart. Where your heart is, there is your happiness. And holding back the tithe proves that God is not our pleasure. Uh, the fact that uh, God is not our pleasure is why their worship was lame. That is why uh, they had poor relationships. That's why... Uh, their attitude towards God was horrible. This is why all these sufferings are happening, the Lord God says, because your devotion is not to me. And I, at the base level, it's proven because you're holding back the tithe. Now, honestly, if I gave you a dollar and said, oh, I only have 90 cents and gave it to you, most of us wouldn't think much of it because 10 cents out of a dollar is not that much. 
But boy, is it a lot when we decide whether we're going to give it to God or not. What a difference it makes in the way we look at the rest of the the things that God has given us. But let's continue through the text and draw our applications, our counsel in a moment. Verse 9. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Now understand when God uses the word curse here in this context with the covenant people, he's not speaking of waving a a sorcerer's wand and putting a jinx or a curse like that on them. Rather, he's speaking of, I'm sending discipline to you, my children, so that you get your heads and hearts right, that you would see. I'm allowing certain things to oppress you, and we know what it is. He's holding back the crops. He's allowing worms or uh, an insect infestation to affect their crops, which would affect how much they eat. Now, they had enough to eat. They were eating, uh, but they weren't eating well, and their crops were suffering greatly. God was allowing discipline upon them, cursing them, if you will, because of their lack of devotion to him as manifested by their holding back tithes and contributions. We know what the curse is. Look at verse 10. Bring the full tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Verse 11, I will rebuke the devourer for you, that those are the worms or the insects, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your, vi- and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. So the curse is in verse 11. Uh, their crops were failing because of their unfaithfulness. But what does he say to do? In verse 10, bring the full tithes into the storehouse. It's possible they were putting their five bucks in the offering. It's possible they were doing that so that everybody saw they were putting something in the offering uh, and rolled it up good so no one could see what it was. But it wasn't even close to their tithe. Now, God knew that. No one else probably knew that. And they were faceless. Uh, as far as the, the clergy people were in those days, just as they are today for the most part. Uh, but their heart was not with God, and it was manifested. And they're giving something, but they were not giving the full tithe. And God understood. He knew. He knows us. He knows what we make. He knows what he gives us. And he knows how much of that we give back. And he looks upon his people and says, you are not bringing the full tithes into the storehouse. The full tithes. Not just your little pittance, but... The full tithes, bring them into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Now, this is a twofold meeting. Food in my house, literally, food was brought in those days. The tithe was given in forms of, of, of merchandise or of crops or of different products from people's trade. And they were given to the temple. And the temple had a place, a literal place, where they stored food. And the clergy that worked there, the Levites, were fed from that. And the Levites also distributed that to the poor, those who did not have. And other... Other portions of the tithe were used for ongoing maintenance of the temple ministry and the various needs that were there in the community. So bringing the full tithe then had a, a profound effect on the worship life of the, the church and the effectiveness of the church. And so food in my storehouse is literal, but it also means that there would be a way in which to supply for all the things that I have ordained, all the things that I want to do by way of ministry. So there may be food in my house. Thereby, and God says, I'm usually, he says, put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. What an incredible statement. God says, test me on this. See if I won't bless you. Now note, please, that this is not a health and wealth formula. You have a heresy uh, out there today where someone says, if you put this much in, you're going to get that much back. God promises nothing of the sort. He promises to meet all of our needs as we are faithful to him at this base level of obedience. This isn't even profound. This is base level. He's saying, I'll provide for your needs. And that doesn't mean monetarily always that you're going to 
get more back because you put in. It just means he'll provide for our needs. And he'll, pour, he'll open up the windows of heaven in that reliance upon God that he is the one giving us all that we have makes it all the more vivid that that's really the truth. For all that we buy and all that we provide and all that we supply, we haven't supplied or provided any of it. God has given to us. And by their tithing now, they put themselves into a position where they have to realign all of their finances, all of their possessions, and think now in terms of who gave them to them. And if they are short, God will provide for them. That is his promise. Put me to the test, he says. And I'll bust open the windows of heaven for you and pour down a blessing until there is no more need. And the need is not just individually. It's a need across the ministry of the church. Now, we have needs. Now, we, are, we do very well uh, to look very well financially. But there's so many ministries and so many needs of ministries that we should be providing as a church, both locally and to the community around us. And he's saying he's going to provide for all those needs. For that which he's called us to, he'll provide for all of it. But have this base level of obedience first. It turns your heart towards me. It gives me proper devotion, God says. Please note verse 12. Then, as a result of this, all nations will call you blessed. For you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. In those days, you have to remember that wars were literally fought over uh, natural resources, uh, food. They actually fought over food or people who lived on land that would provide better food. Those were the reasons that wars were fought often. Uh, to observe a nation then that prospered in this day of, of want uh, because it was being prospered in its farming and food supply would have been a tremendous witness to the watching world. Uh, to see God provide for them really in a miraculous way because it wasn't just based on their own resources or ingenuity, but clearly God was blessing them. That would have a, a huge impact on the witness they would have. They would look to the church and they would see how God was prospering them because of their generosity towards the church and the outworking ministries of the church. And this would have a huge witness to the communities around us and around them at that time. And you know what's interesting about this is that obedience is the first real step to evangelism. All of us are concerned with the lost coming to know Christ. But I submit to you that the first step that we often skip over is simple obedience. Simple obedience in this area, especially, is a huge witness that we should not underestimate to the watching world. It is very different. It's profoundly different uh, when a church is that generous, when people in America are that generous uh, in giving to any charitable cause. Do you know that the average charitable amount of giving that people give is less than 2%? Less than 2% of what they have is given to charitable causes. That's an IRS fact. Uh, the amount of people that actually tithe in churches is under 4%, we are told. Under 4%. So imagine the difference if there was a higher percentage of just church-going people who would tithe and give to other causes beyond the tithe. What a difference that would make in the effectiveness of the ministry, but the witness it would have to a watching world. You know, if you do computer program now, that's how I do my taxes. It's interesting that if you tithe, or even if you give close to a tithe, your computer will stop you and, and question you over and over about the amount of charitable giving you give. Because it's so, uh, tithing is so far above what the average giver gives in America. They red flag it and say, the IRS is going to ask you about this. This is way higher than a normal percentage. And, and I, I've heard that over across the board from people who tithe or who contribute money. It's, it, it's, it just, it, it's amazed when it looks at 10% of your income and says you must be giving somewhere. Something else is going on. They're going to ask you about it. So imagine if all the people in the Church of Christ, not just Redeemer, but other Christian churches, were tithing. Just tithing. What a witness, what an impact they make on the IRS alone. 
Just the people who are looking at your stuff. When they see just millions of people giving this amount of money to their church, I would submit to you that there would be a whole range of effects beyond just that. But just that base level of witness alone would really speak volumes. Look at the difference between these people that are, are in the Christian church and all these other returns we get. And that's about the most elementary level of witness you can imagine, isn't it? Because they've got the figures. But that's what it says, that all the nations will call you blessed. For you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. God gives them clear direction, but then also rebukes them again for their harsh words towards them. And their attitude, their current attitude about finances is revealed in 13 through 15. And I keep saying finances, but understand, you know what I mean, the devotion of their heart. It's not just about money. It's the devotion of their heart. Verse 13, your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. You said, how have we spoken against you? And look what the Lord reveals about their, what they're saying. It's vain to serve God. What profit, profit, key word, what profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. So they're saying a couple of things. One, what good? We're not making anything off of this. You're, we're not pay, Christianity doesn't pay, or in their day, a faith in the living God does not pay. We're not better off financially because of this. Why should we do it? Furthermore, there's the Donald Trumps of the world who are doing nothing but bragging about how they're self-made. And by the way, you know how you become a billionaire? Start as a millionaire. So those self-made people aren't even really that, are they? Very few. But self-made is a misnomer anyways, isn't it? It's God who, for whatever reason, according to his own will, will even let the wicked prosper in that way for a time. But they're looking at the wicked and saying, look at these people, these arrogant. You're calling them blessed. This person's going around bragging how they got all of this, and they're saying it has nothing to do with you, God, and you're letting them go on like this. Us, you haven't shown us the money. That's what they're saying. You haven't shown us the money. All the while, well... Stating that faith in God does not yield monetary reward. They're holding back their tithe. Imagine this. While holding back their tithe, they're complaining about God not prospering them. Return to me, says the Lord. How shall we return to you? Stop robbing God and start giving what is his. Now, let's take this account for a moment and glean from it counsel for today because I think it's very, very helpful for us. Now, I wish I could put editorial flashing in the corner because there will be a few moments like that, and I'll try to point those out. But for the most part, I think what you're going to hear is derived directly as, uh, at least inferred from this, or as you look at the totality of the Bible's teaching on giving, you'll see what I'm saying. Now, first of all, and very briefly, because we have gone through this before, understand that the principle of tithing, it's questioned today by some, but tithing is the beginning of obedient stewardship. And it's one of those few points of uh, obedience or commands that God gives that really ranges the whole range of, hi of the history of redemption. You remember that Cain and Abel first brought offerings to God. We're not told that it was a tithe, but there was a nature of the, the idea, the quality of it was what God was looking for uh, because it showed the devotion of their hearts. When Cain brought uh, stuff that was secondary or was, it was the leftovers and he brought it to God, after time he brought it, whereas Abel brought from the first fruits. So the first thing Abel did was bring to God his portion. So we have that as a base level. But then even before Moses' time, you'll remember when Abraham, who was very, very rich, gave, at least from an earthly standpoint, gave a tithe of all he had with this mysterious priest called Melchizedek, who is kind of this picture of Christ's priesthood, in this picture to us of us giving unto Christ what has been given by, to us by him, giving back to them a 10% or a tithe of all that he had. And he did this in Genesis 14. Jacob does something very similar in Genesis 28. And then after the exodus from Egypt under Moses, you recall the, the codified tithe. That is where it's written vividly. 
It happens in several places in the Old Testament. Let me just read you one. Deuteronomy 14. You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that come from the field year by year. And before the Lord your God in the place that he will choose to make his name to dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, of your oil, of the firstborn of your herd and your flock, and you shall learn to fear the Lord your God. In Leviticus, every tithe of the land, whether the seed of the land or the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. So this concept was always understood by God's people, that the first 10% of whatever yield they have is what they give to God. It's holy unto him. It keeps them aligned. It keeps their devotion straight. And it provides for the work of the ministry that God is doing. Now, we come to Jesus' day, and often people erroneously will say, well, tithing is done away with in the New Testament. Well, Jesus had an opportunity to do away with it, and he didn't. Matthew 23, verse 23 says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You should be tithing, but you're neglecting the heart of it. So he's rebuking them. For a secondary aspect, the tithing, they were doing legalistically. They were not doing from their heart. They were not doing as a response to God's graciousness because people saw. But they were neglecting justice, mercy, faithfulness. All the while, Jesus has an opportunity to say, don't you know that tithing is not in effect anymore? I'm more concerned with your heart, and you should give what your heart says. That's not what he says. You should have done this, but you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, the living out of the law. We find in Paul's day, on the first day of the week in 1 Corinthians 16, every one of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no, uh, there'll be no collecting when I come. In other words, on the first day of every week, which uh, we celebrate a Sunday, uh, that's when the offering is taken. That's when it's given. In fact, I really recommend, even if you tithe or you give your check uh, monthly, especially for children, it's important to teach them to weekly put something into the offering just as a, as, as a, as a symbol or a sign of that tithe that the family gives. Uh, rather than perhaps you know once a month put it in or mail it in, there's actual part of the worship service that is actually symbolic as we all give. And that's actually why Pastor Nathan and myself, just like the temple priest, not that we're priests in that sense, come and receive the offering from the ushers and then put it, in, uh, put it under the table here when the, and the deacons take it and so forth and manage it. But there's, there's symbolism there that reminds us of the importance of what is holy unto the Lord, that, that first part that he has prospered us, that percentage. Tithing is always the underlying concept given in the Bible. You'll notice something else in our passage that usually is thought of as a New Testament concept. Look at verse 8 one more time. In your tithes and contributions. Now, this is important. It's always been a biblical concept that the tithe is the underlying basic uh, giving that the church does, that the church member does, that the Christian does. But there's also special contributions that come up in the Old Testament, whether it be building the temple or other needs that arise in the New Testament as well. So that's why we use the term tithes. And really we say it this way, his tithes and our offerings. The tithes we give is just because that's his. Uh, he's marked the 10% of his. Now you may be using it somewhere else, uh, but it's his money that you're using somewhere else. Then we give from our hearts. So we give beyond that based on specific ways God's called us to give, whether it be a building campaign like we're doing, a missionary gift you're giving, or some other way that you're giving money uh, beyond that tithe. You're bringing the full tithe into the storehouse, and then beyond that, you're finding ways in which you can contribute to God's work abroad and, and throughout, and even beyond our church. So giving a tithe is required, but there are special occasions when other contributions could be made. That was even existent in the Old Testament times. Now let's consider something 
that relates to this. I would submit to you that the lack of tithing and giving is a major reason for the relative ineffectiveness of the church today. You say, well, ineffective. One only has to look at Kansas's vote this last, this last week to realize how ineffective the church is. I don't think we're putting our money where our mouths are. With the abortion issue, uh, what a difference it would make if we actually put money up on it saying that we will adopt a certain level of babies, we'll provide this kind of service to do that, and literally put our money where our mouth is. That family that actually maybe not give money, but say that, okay, God has given me this many children, I'm going to do what I can to adopt one of those children. I can certainly, God will provide for me to protect or take care of one of those children. And if we actually were that proactive rather than just talking about it, what a difference that could make. Would the nations call us blessed? If we were actually proactive socially, we weren't just talking about it, we are living it out in our giving and our, the way we give, even by something like adopting a child or being more vocal or more active in such issues like we face this week with this marriage situation that's coming up. And I think the lack of giving really has worked to hurt us because it shows where our devotion is and we don't have the resources necessarily. We have them, we're just not freeing them up to do the things that could make a bigger impact on the culture. But it's not just about stuff we could have or buildings or ministries that could be enhanced or missionaries we can contribute to. It's the very devotion of the church and the radical nature of our being, if you will, sold out for the Lord uh, would be enhanced by this practice of tithing. And we'll actually get that to that in a moment where I suggest to you that tithing actually revolutionizes our personal lives. And that feeds into this idea that if our personal lives are revolutionized, that our devotion is changed, that that's going to have an effect on everything we do and the people we're around, uh, the witness we have to the world. Do you know that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, one out of every six verses deals with money or possessions? Of the 29 parables Jesus told, 16 deal with a person and his money or his possessions. So clearly, this issue is plaguing the church. Attendance is growing. We have huge churches in our area. And, and I'm sure huge dollars available. But the ineffectiveness of the church to exact change, repentance, is, is evident too, isn't it? It's clear. Kansas is one of the most conservative states. You ought to, you ought to visit my home state, New York. Kansas is, is so far. But we're, down the, we're heading down the slide too. And I believe that one of the main ways that God will have an effect is the witness of the church. And I think that it goes to the basics of what our country is so plagued with, materialism, idolatry, that this simple obedience would enhance the effectiveness of the church today. I would like to suggest to you a second thing, that tithing revolution, revolutionizes our personal lives. Uh, the Bible speaks uh, thoroughly about our possessions. And the issue is whether money and possessions are our tools or whether we are their tools. Do they own us or we do, do we own it? And how is it being used? It's really a statement of priority that weighs on your mind when you commit to tithing. Uh, it puts our spending in balance. If you commit it to a tithe uh, and other giving, it's, it's set figures in your budget. It then helps control your other spending. And I'm just going to be honest with you. If you're not tithing, it will be extremely painful when you start. It's really the earlier you start, and this, this is why I definitely teach your children young, how to do this, but it will be extremely painful. And clearly, and it conf I'll confess this to you, it's only been easier for me since I'm a pastor and I know someone's going to find out if I'm tithing or not. How's that for unspiritual reasons? But that has made it to where it's second nature, you don't even think about it, and then every other purchase you make, literally, when you're at the store, it's all based on the fact that these are set figures, whether it be missionary support, supporting that you, ha that you do, 
in addition to your tithe or whatever things you're giving to that way, you know are set because there's a level at which, first of all, that is God's. And also people are doing ministry based on my commitment to give this amount. And so that then really dictates other spending that I will do. I just, have, I just have to stick, I have to be true to this one because it's so fundamental to my faith, to who I am, to my reaction to God's grace, that I will have to uh, rob Peter to pay Paul in other ways in my budget rather than skimp on this area because this area is set. And what is amazing is two things. There's a natural connection to our tithes and a supernatural connection. The natural one I just told you. If you're giving 10% of your income, uh, that's going to affect how else you buy things, without question. Especially young families, you're sending your children to school, you're sending your children to Westminster, it costs money to educate your children. There's no question in my mind that you're feeling it. You are feeling it. But the natural thing is it'll help you with other purchases. You know you can't buy this or you're not going to buy that because of some of these set items. That's the natural outflow of tithing. But there's a supernatural one. And I understand it's somewhat experience-based, so I have to be careful. But there's a supernatural aspect to it that I think has to do with, will I not open the windows of heaven and supply so that there are no more needs? In other words, it's almost like God saying that your tithe alone, really, bottom line, wouldn't be enough to do all the things. But when you give it, I will, in a way that you cannot fathom, supply other money, other things, other stuff, other security that you cannot even imagine. And I can only point to different instances in my life. I've shared some of them with you, the most, uh, several most vivid ones. But the one that hit me most when I was first becoming convicted of this is when I was in college, and I was convinced that it was a scriptural proof. And I went through a lot of this in college where scriptural proofs were becoming clear to me as I was studying the word, I was studying the languages, but practicing was really, really hard following. And I knew this had to be true, but I just also knew that I was dirt poor. I was eating ramen noodles all the time. There's no way I could tithe, even if it was 10 bucks. And I remember when the Lord convicted me in this, and I was literally short on my school bill as a result of this, $60 exactly, maybe in some change. And as, after getting done trying to convince the registrar, the lady who works for the registrar, uh, that I'll come up with the money uh, next month, and they'd just gone to this strict system of collecting money uh, to where if you were done, you were, you were not, if you could not pay, you were not enrolled the next Monday. So on a Friday night, I go in there trying to plead my case. 60 bucks short. Come on, just give me a little more time. Just 60 bucks. No, I'm sorry, Tony, you're gonna have to be, you won't be enrolled until you can pay this. So I walked out there moping. I get in the elevator, and some guy I've never seen says, have you paid your school bill? And I said, as a matter of fact, I'm short. And he gave me $60 in cash and walked off the elevator. I've never seen the guy since. I've never, and you know I don't tell these kind of stories often. I'm just telling you that's what happened. I literally pr- stayed in the elevator, pressed the third floor, went back up and handed it to the lady. You should have seen the look on her face. I'm just telling you, there's a supernatural way that God provides for you. And I would just say this. I know it's possible to do everything on credit today. I'm not telling you never use credit. I think there's good emergency purposes for such things and so on. But even then, if it's something that you can just say to the Lord, Lord, you know my need. I've been as as responsible as I can be in other ways. I'm still sinful, but I do my best with the rest of the finances. Could you provide this? Watch how he does that. And it may not be exactly the way you think. It may be something a little bit different, but he provides for our needs. And it's a wonderful opportunity we have. It revolutionizes our personal lives. Someone says that the trouble is that too many people are spending money they haven't yet earned for things they don't need to impress people they don't like. Maybe that's true. But I would submit to you that tithing will, in effect, revolutionize your personal life, your view of him naturally and supernaturally. Also, I would like to submit to you, finally, that tithing promotes the expansion of God's kingdom 
Luther said this so wonderfully. I have tried to keep things in my hands and lost them all. But what I have given into God's hands, I still possess. Hear what he says? I've tried to keep stuff, but I've lost it. But what I have given into God's hands, I still possess. Just imagine what our church could do in ministry if we were a tithing church. Now, I think that we do pretty well. I asked Mark Dunn, what do you think? I mean, how do you think the percentage are? From a spiritual perspective, I don't know any details of any personal giving, nor is it good for any pastor to know that. But do you think, Mark, if you're looking at it, do you think that we're a tithing church? He thinks not bad. He takes the figures to the bank, and the bank, as far as what we raise the money, they're, they're ready to give us the money yesterday based on the giving and the amount of money that's been raised. But you know and I know that we're probably not really a tithing church. We probably give well, but we're not a tithing church. I don't know that others are, but let's not worry about what others are. Let's just worry about what we are. And just here, if we would do that, what, do you, what, what, what dreams do you have about what we can do with that? Is it not possible that we wouldn't have to send Mike and Susan Hirschberger to other churches to ask for money? And we're giving a significant portion of money. Don't, don't misunderstand me. Is that possible we could do it? And we could still do a building. We could still call another pastor in another year or so, which we will need. We'll need someone for just directing all the children's ministries we have in fifth grade below. Could we not do these things if we were just faithful on that level? People asked us when we were going to this building campaign, how are you going to do this? How, are we, gonna, we interviewed companies, you know, that would come in and tell you how they raise money, and they'll give you the stats. Not one elder, not one elder after hearing us thought that this was a good idea. It works, though. Churches are doing it, and they're raising tons of money with having these groups come in. But not one of us thought it was a good, a good model. We're not telling other churches what to do. We just didn't think it was the model for us. So instead, we go to you and say, this is the need. People still called me and said, but how much? You know, what, what should each family give? Can we just do that? And th my simple answer is this. Biblically speaking, all of us should be tithing. If you're not tithing, raise it to a tithe. And maybe that's the increase. And then those who can give above their tithe, please do so. That's the campaign. And by the way, we're still in the campaign. So whether you fill out a card or not, this base level of obedience is profound to the rest of our spiritual lives. And it really has the effect of the nations calling us blessed when they see what we're doing with it. Put me to the test, God says, in verse 10. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down a blessing until there is no more need. Peter Marshall said, give according to your income, lest God make your income according to your giving. You heard that one? Let me conclude by saying, answering three reasons why people don't tithe. First of all, they were never taught the concept. Uh, I've been amazed at how many people have never been taught the concept. You've been taught. Number two, they think it's not for today. And only briefly I touched on it, but I could speak at length on this. That is erroneous thinking. It, it, tithing underlies the whole of the Bible. And I've heard people say, <clears throat> well, give 9% or give 11%, but don't give 10%, that kind of thing. Uh, give 11% if that's your mindset. Uh, and furthermore, there, are, there is another model, true, if you just want to take the New Testament, there is another model that I'm open to as well. It's bring everything you have and bring it to the church. So that is an option for you. Those are the two, tithing and contributions or bring everything you've got. Those are the only two things we see in Scripture. So you could take the second one, but the tithe is probably uh, underlies the whole of Scripture, and we have much more attestation for that. Some say they, just, they don't think that they can, and that's the natural reaction. They have too many financial commitments, they just can't. And I understand that. There's no pressure to tomorrow turn around and do that. You're going to have to ask the Lord. Sometimes our, our finances get such a mess from, in its priorities and so forth that we have to just ask the Lord to bring us to this point and slowly but surely do it, but definitely move towards doing it. It will revolutionize. The financial mess you're in 
could actually be profoundly affected by just that simple discipline. You'd be amazed at how that has changed. Finally, I would just say to you, I understand that this can be a touchy subject, but it's one that has to be spoken of because in Malachi's day, this is what God says will get them to return to him. For all those spiritual problems, it was this one matter that would change their hearts. Close with a little devotional excerpt that I read some years ago, but I've read uh, quite a bit since then because it's profound in, in my thinking, especially with little children and taking them to the doctor. This writer says, when you go to a doctor for your annual checkup, he or she will often begin to poke, prod, press various places, all the while asking, does this hurt? How about this? If you cry out in pain, one of two things has happened. Either the doctor has pushed too hard without the right sensitivity, or more likely there's something wrong. And the doctor will say, we'd better do some more tests. It's not supposed to hurt there. So it is when pastors preach on financial responsibility, and certain members cry out in discomfort, criticizing the message and the messenger. Not saying that anyone would do that. Either the pastor has pushed too hard, or perhaps there's something wrong. In that case, I say, my friend, we're in need of the great physician, because it's not supposed to hurt there. And thereby, put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you, and pour down for you a blessing, until there is no more need. Let us pray.